Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Thursday, March the 23rd, 2023. We're having a day of fairy tales, one kind or another. Earlier today, Talk to the poet and short story writer, Sabrina Oramark. She has a new book out, Happily, a memoir told in fairy tales. She argued that ancient, that fairy tales are ancient stories about our future. And she writes fairy tales, or she writes about fairy tales, she told me, to wake us up. Of course, the American dream is a kind of fairy tale, always open to interpretation. Many people believe in it healthily. It's something that certainly exists for some. We had a guest a few months ago, Michael Saman, a young Peruvian immigrant who became a wealthy app developer. He wrote about it in App Kid. That's the conventional fairy tale, the conventional narrative of uh, the American dream. Uh, and it's a dream that's open to all sorts of interpretation, cultural or otherwise. We had a young uh, Mexican-American woman, Erica Sanchez, who came on the show last year talking about uh, what it means to be an American and what the American dream should be in the early 21st century. But not everyone believes in the continued existence of the American dream. A couple of weeks ago, I had the journalist Alyssa Quart on the show. She has a new book out, Bootstrap, Liberating Ourselves. Uh, sorry, liberating ourselves from the American dream. And it was a really interesting conversation. Alyssa said that we've got to be honest with ourselves. The American dream no longer exists. My guest today, I think, might be in Alyssa's camp. Back in 2017, she wrote a piece for The Guardian asking whether or not the American dream is really dead. She wrote a book back then called Happiness for All, unequal hopes and lives in pursuit of the American dream. And she argued in it uh, that uh, there were huge costs, not just psychological, but economic in being poor in America today. It's an interesting book. And she's followed up with a kind of second volume, I guess, about fairy tales and hope um, and the death or the Resurrection of the American Dream. The new book is called The Power of Hope, How the Science of Well-Being Can Save Us from Despair. Its author is Carol Graham. Uh, she's a bigwig at the Brookings Institute in Washington, D.C., and she's joining us now. Carol, congratulations on the book. Um, perhaps you might explain how you got from happiness for all to the new book. Uh, you, the book uh, Happiness for All uh, came out in 2017. This new book, The Power of Hope, How the Science of Well-Being Can Save Us from Despair. Um, well, it, it was a long story. Actually, just for full, since you've had all these immigrants on the show, I actually was born in Peru. And um, my dad was American Peruvian. My mother was Swiss and French. But um, I didn't come to the States till I was three. And I have to say, when we came, and we were not underprivileged immigrants. My dad went to Johns Hopkins um, Medical School, um, not to go, he to teach. But, um, it, you know, I used to come from Peru to America and think it was the land of the dream. And it was, you know, economies were stable and 
It was a democracy. We had a lot of political turmoil in Peru. And I grew up between the two places. But as I've gotten, you know, as years have passed, um, I've noticed that coming back to the United States for, say, the past decade at least, there's a sense of malaise, a sense of, um, of lack of hope, a sense and a, a real sense that it's in a way harder to be poor in the U.S., harder to be poor in a rich country in a way, and particularly this rich country, which I can talk about in detail after, than to be poor in a poor country um, where there's a lot more hope about getting ahead. And I started poking into this in about 2015 and discovered in my metrics of well-being how the poor in the U.S. were 20 times less hopeful about hard work getting them ahead and about the future than the poor in Latin America. And I, I thought that was a very stark finding. I started poking into it more and I found what seemed then to be a big surprise, but it isn't now, that poor African-Americans and poor Hispanics were much more hopeful than poor, Amer poor white Americans. And then lastly, right after I sort of got those findings and uh, Case and Angus Deaton came out with their famous uh, paper on the deaths of despair and the fact that we were yeah, and, um, uh, Angus has been on on the show it's a yeah very much in association I know that uh, I'm sure you've worked with uh, Case and Deaton I've yeah I've worked with both of them and um, it's definitely uh, you know what I wrote them at the time and said you know my metrics and your metrics are telling a very similar story they're just very different metrics you have death tolls and I have well-being metrics but since then I started to track deaths of despair with well-being metrics. And I found indeed at, you know, U.S. across, you know, national level work across counties um, that the people, the biggest marker of being in a county and or a population category that had high levels of deaths of despair was lack of hope. And, and so because of that, and because since then, we've had COVID. We we've, we've seen increases in um, mental health crises. We've you know 20, 2020 and 2021, we had record numbers of overdoses, and the deaths of despair have spread to younger groups, to more minorities. It used to be considered a middle age, lo, uh, low income white problem, and all of a sudden, it seems like it's a full blown mental health crisis, which actually be, actually began way before COVID among, among it's, it increased among the young mental health problems starting in 2012 or so. So it's been long going, but in any event, um, so the more I worked on deaths of despair, which is a pretty, you know, it's a pretty hard thing to do, pretty depressing, especially when the problem is getting worse over time. I also got involved with um, a lot of groups in the UK where I've done a lot of work on well-being and um, and then more recently some in the US that mm -hmm. were this is one of these is in the UK it's this this well-being research center is is that at Oxford that's at Oxford where I actually did my PhD and uh, I reviewed that book there well-being and science book um, it's also another place that takes the lessons from the science and puts them into action is the um, What Works Wellbeing Center. And there they take lessons from academics and uh, well-being research and actually have interventions in schools, in towns, in you know, everything from loneliness to self-esteem among students to a range of things, workforce satisfaction or lack of satisfaction, um, 
the role of green spaces um, and try and come up with lessons that are scalable and generalizable to other deprived communities. So I realized that in addition to the academic work I was doing, tracking deaths and tracking the metrics that allowed us, I don't want to say predict, but that allowed us to warn of vulnerability among populations and communities that, you know, uh, that could be most vulnerable to these deaths, that we had some lessons that we could try and implement to do something about it. Because there's not, when people lack hope or, or are in despair, which is not exactly the opposite, but it's the analog, um, the, the th big thing that distinguishes them is they really don't care if they live or die. They don't have purpose or meaning in life. So you can have all the economic incentives you want, and that they are indeed often lacking, but you can have those incentives and people aren't going to take them. Uh, you know, why are 20% all, well, and I think it's a little bit lower. Why are 20% of prime age males in the U S out of the labor force? It doesn't, you know, that, that doesn't seem to make sense that, you know, there are incentives to work and jobs are not great quality, but you, you would think that those numbers wouldn't be that large. And when you look at the traits of the people out of the labor force, and this is people who have dropped out of the labor force permanently, so that they no longer um, that they no longer um, are looking for a job, and they actually fall out of the unemployment rate. They're no longer included in the ratio um, where you calculate, you know, the number. Right. So, of Carol, maybe you can explain this in America. This is something I don't really understand. You're, you're, I guess, you call yourself an economist. Um, you're uh, you're certainly uh, a theorist of this of the metrics of hope. You're not just a psychologist. You're not a political philosopher. You're focusing on quantifying hope and right. social and economic well-being in a culture in America, which is defined perhaps by magic of one kind or another in sports, in sexuality, in identity. Why have people given up on hope? Are they simply becoming more realistic in terms of the economic architecture of America, or are they just purely pessimistic? In other words, you know, the philosophers over the ages have always argued about whether or not people understand their own circumstances. Marx was perhaps the most famous of these. Are people simply waking up to the reality of their hopeless situation in America? I think there are um, a number of, of explanations. One is the fact that um, there's been a huge gap in the fates of working class, low skilled workers and wealthy skilled workers. And the gaps are not just in income, although those are absolutely huge, but they're also in quality of lives. Um, you know, a lot of low skilled workers um, work in, you know, pretty tough jobs. They don't have good benefits. They often, do, I think it's, I don't remember the exact figure, but about 40%, 50% of them don't know what their work schedule will be the next week. Try being a work, single working mother and, you know, surviving that. Um, and so you've got this sense that we're just increasingly divided and that shows up in the, in the metrics, right? The rich here are still hopeful. It's, it's low income groups that are not. A particular concern is the lack of hope among the white working class. Um, and it's because of a, a genuine decline in status, in fate, in you know, good jobs and stable lives and stable communities. 
but also it's a it's a bit of a resentment story. It's being caught up with by the minorities who are mo more hopeful and have been making gradual progress and still actually believe in um, education as a tool to get ahead. I mean, chapters three and four in the book are all about that, how, you know, if young people today don't have hope and they don't pursue some form of education after high school, it does not have to be college, but, you know, they, they need the, the cognitive and socio-emotional skills that are required in tomorrow's labor markets. They don't have them. They don't get them in high school. But what is stark, most stark is that low-income whites, both parents and children, don't believe in education going on. Not that's a big generalization, but the majority of the, the cohort does not believe in higher education. What is and the role of, of religion, uh, Carol, here? Marx, of course, said, describe religion as the opium of the people. The, the, the white underclass in this country seems we've had a number of shows about white populism and white evangelical movements. Um, is the embrace of these conspiratorial evangelical movements, is it um, a reflection of the giving up of hope or do many poor whites embrace Pentecostal Christianity as a form of salvation. I have been trying to get my head around that for quite a while. One, I don't, you know, I'm obviously I'm not an expert in religion and I, I tend to control for religious affiliation, religiosity in my quantitative work because I don't want, I, and I don't believe that these findings are solely driven by religion at all. But no, religion, I'm not saying that, but no, it does no, have a role. It could, it could be, wait. It, but anyway, just, just listen to me for a second. The religions that minorities have tend to be community level support religions, the Baptist church, Catholic churches, Hispanic families, whatever, which are a form of religion, if, um, if I can say that. Evangelicals um, actually emphasize people's personal relationship with God. Um, and so it's a very different kind of religion. I think there's a lot of manipulation there as well. I'm sorry. I think a lot of the evangelical pastors have shown them to be money-making cheats. But um, so I think it's kind of the opiate of, of desperate people. And I think one thing we know is that um, people in despair are much more likely to believe conspiracy theories, to mm. be vulnerable to misinformation. Um, other characteristics help explain that. Uh, they tend to not be as well educated. Um, they tend to not have access to good local news. And so we've seen this huge decline in credible local news sources, local newspapers and, and other sources, and an increasing you know, percentage of our population getting their news from various forms of social media, which some are and some are not credible, um, as I'm sure you know well. And so all that sort of I think wraps in together, but I don't think, I don't, I don't, if, if religion was giving um, low income whites so much hope, then why, why are they voting for Trump? Why are they, do they support the January 6th protests? Well, you know, it's sort of, I just think it's a sign of despair more than anything else. It's kind of no other option, right? And how does Trump and the new kind of, white populism fit into all this? Is it, again, a consequence of them giving up of, on hope and then embracing 
Trump's uh, apocalyptic pessimism? I think what Trump did, um, probably more than um, any other politician in a long time, was sort of highlight the plight of the, the, the declining white working class. And part of it was racist and race, you know, a lot of racial undertones make America great again is essentially make America white again. I think we all know that. Um, so I think that, you know, that's, um, that's part of it. I, I think the other reason uh, he appeals to them is he's very anti-system, right? And if the system that you've believed in for a long time, you know, if anybody believed the American dream, you work hard, you get ahead, um, it was the white working class, right? Minorities have never fully believed it because the system didn't always work for them. They were discriminated against or they had inferior conditions. But for a long time, if you were in the white working class and you finished high school, you'd get a good, you know, privileged access to the manufacturing jobs and you'd lead a stable, respected, I would say lower middle class existence and that's gone. And so Trump picked up on that, right? And so finally, and I think, you know, all of us for many years probably weren't really aware of the extent of that problem. And, you know, a lot of our, our policies and rhetoric has justifiably been to try and correct the injustices, racial and, you know, financial and otherwise that exist, you know, uh, for minorities and not focusing on another part of our society that was falling into despair. Now, they, I think they're materially better off because they started off from a, a, the white working class because they started off from a higher level of income um, and status. But I, I think over time, their decline has been pretty remarkable. And you throw in opioids and you throw in all kinds of other things that um, have been plaguing declining communities and uh, and also former manufacturing towns were targeted by the opioid manufacturers so you had a perfect storm you know of both relative and actual decline for absolute decline for these people um you know people pushing drugs that i guess ease their pain and their pain could have been both physical and psychological um you know why do middle age Americans report more pain than older Americans. That doesn't make sense, right? That has to do with psychological pain. Um, so anyway, yeah. And Trump just fed into all of that disenchantment. So the key question seems to me, Carol, is how do we address this? It seems to be the ultimate chicken and egg problem. As you said, people are giving up hope because it reflects their true economic situation. But how do we improve? Can we improve their hope? Can we make them more optimistic, more positive? Can we reinvent the American dream without changing the fundamental socioeconomic architecture of America? Because that's where do you start with this? Is it with their attitude or with the, the, the bigger question and the bigger challenge of changing the very nature of society? I, I think we have to eventually and are starting to gradually change the socioeconomic architecture um, in part due to COVID, but I think Biden and his team had a pretty good success with a lot of programs that unfortunately are winding down, but showed how things like 
child income tax credit and other things could really pull a lot of people out of poverty. And that's not the only solution, but that's a start. Um, and just, you know, having, I don't know if it will ever happen here. I'm so frustrated. You know, I spent a lot of time in the UK and even in Latin America, there are national health systems. People, if they lose their job here, lose their health insurance. It's, you know, there's, it's like a double failure, right? Um, and our safety net varies tremendous amount by state. Interestingly enough, it's the worst in red states where there are a lot of poor people. It's kind of perverse, right? That we can't do that better in the richest country in the world or one of the richest countries in the world. So that's part of it. But part of it is indeed restoring hope because um, as I mentioned before, people in despair who lack hope just don't respond to incentives, right? So you have to kind of think about both sides of the coin. I, in the book, I focus a lot on the need to restore hope among the next generation. I don't want to say this generation is lost, but it's a lot more difficult to restore hope among, you know, people in communities of full of despair that no longer have job opportunities and that are, you know, 55, 60, they're not going to retrain and re-enter the labor force, right? There are interventions that help them you know, sort of have purpose in, in life, things like, you know, providing opportunities to volunteer or whatever, but th those are sort of patchwork solutions. But for the next generation, we really need uh, mentorship on a, on a big level. We need for them to have information about what faces them in the next, you know, in labor markets. One of the things I've been working also with groups in the UK and here is how Low-income kids in particular who are graduating high school trying to, you know, make decisions about education or entering the labor force, they really do not know where to start. You know, we don't have things like apprenticeship programs. And even in the UK where they have many more of them, there's been kind of a drop down in interest in those. There is kind of a, a sort of collective uncertainty. Um, and I think, you know, you, you add in the high levels of inflation and cost of living, the war in Ukraine and all sorts, and COVID, of course, there are a lot of things that make it pretty hard to be, you know, entering the labor force as a kid. I mean, even my, um, my, my three children are in their twenties, but it's, you know, it's, there's a lot going on that makes it hard. I mean, they are, they're all actually doing stuff that one's a starving local journalist, although he's very good. And another one's in med school and another one's, doing accounting. So they, they found their way, but it, it took a lot of support and they were very privileged compared to many kids in this country that one, don't have an access to higher education and two, um, don't have mentorship. They don't what have happens, So I, I take your point, Carol, what happens if this thing continues? What happens if the class that you write about, the class who have despaired and given up of hope, um, what happens if that class actually grows? We have new technologies now, AI technologies, which are enormously powerful in Silicon Valley that might actually make your kids and my kids part of this new class of despair. What becomes of America if more and more people drift, sink into the, the, uh, the class of despair that you write about and that Angus Case... Uh, uh, Angus Deaton and, and Case write about? Um, it wouldn't look good. It wouldn't be good. 
I think where I take hope, to use a cliche word given the topic of this podcast, is in the continued hopefulness and progress that minorities are making, and that and that includes investing in higher education. In the book, I spent some time with some visionary school district superintendents in Missouri, which has you know every problem of the U.S. all in one state: uh, racial division, declining manufacturing, very divided uh, between rich and poor, um, and. It was amazing how uh, one of the school superintendents, a, a guy called Art McCoy, who is now at St. Louis University, I think he got exhausted after many years and, and is sort of trying to broaden his message, but he got uh, the school district that he was superintendent of called Jennings, which was one of the worst school districts in all of Missouri, not just St. Louis, but all of Missouri, to being an accredited school where um, you know, graduation rate from high school is about 50, 60%. But of those kids who graduate, 95% go on to pursue college. And again, I don't think college is a solution, but it reflects a, cer a certain, you know, attempt to acquire agency and support for those attempts. And that, I mean, that's a start because as I said before, sort of pessimistically, I don't think we're going to be able to change this generation all that much. Um, I do think we have to change the next generation. Um, and Why, when you say we have to, that's because we like, don't want the outcome that you're describing. Well, right? we, yeah. who, who is we? I mean, uh, you know, when, when I think about America, of course, and, and your, your, your focus on hope, I think of the city of hope in Arkansas, the place that, of course, uh, the home of both Bill Clinton and and, and today uh, Elizabeth Huckabee Sanders, who's the current uh, governor of, of Arkansas. Uh, the, the politics of all this are really the key, aren't they? I mean, well, Huckabee Sanders I mean, seems to, uh, you know, the failure of Clinton or Clintonism seems to have contributed to this. And then the Republicans, in some ways, benefit from the, the death of hope. Well, if they think they're benefiting, it's a pretty perverse benefit because in the end, they're extremely divided now. Uh, you know, obviously a lot of people are turning away from Trump, thank God, but yeah, I'm not sure DeSantis is much better or, you know, a lot of the alternatives. But yeah, our politics, I think that's another reason kids aren't helpful now. I mean, nothing can get done. We seem to be going backwards. We're taking abortion rights away from women. We're, you know, we have a Supreme Court that has reversed a lot of decisions, things like gun rights. We can't seem to get there in this country. We have the highest level of per, per capita gun ownership in the world. And to be, we're followed by like the Congo. I mean, that's where we are. And we can't solve that problem. So, yeah, we have a huge problem of divided politics. I'm not a political scientist. I don't know how to solve it. But I think the, the kinds of things I'm talking about, writing about, and have been studying are things that would help people find a path for themselves and their families and their communities that would think much more about purpose, that would, that would include giving back to the community, that would include reducing divisions. And I mean, maybe it will have to happen from the bottom up because it doesn't seem to be happening from the top down. Um, I mean, in the UK, the government when I was on a National Academy of Sciences panel in 2012, 
we worked with the government effort in the UK to get well-being metrics into their um, statistics. Now they went ahead and we, we got nowhere here, but they now have, you know, a government well-being metrics in their annual population survey, you know, life satisfaction, meaning and purpose, anxiety, and um, then like a, a momentary measure of positive affect. They also have well-being metrics as part and parcel of their cost-benefit analysis in the Treasury Department. They have a Ministry of Loneliness. I mean, there's a lot going on where they have at least publicly recognized these problems and what they stem from. And the current leveling up effort in the UK, which is trying to reduce the big uh, regional disparities, which you're probably aware of in the UK, that they're just, you know, that like parts of England are nothing like you know, the prosperous Oxford, London part of England. But leveling up is trying to not just reduce the income disparities, but reduce the disparities in well-being. And it turns out people with higher levels of well-being live longer, they're more productive, they lead, you know, they lead better, happier lives. It's, you know, that goes in part and parcel with the kinds of things that make economies work that, you know, promote higher productivity. So I don't, you know, for example, I get very frustrated when people talk about replacing gross national product with gross national happiness or other swan songs. I don't think that makes any sense at all, but I'm a big, big proponent of including metrics of well-being in our official statistics. It's like another, you know, item on your car dashboard, right? 